Hi everyone, you're hearing from me straight up this week because it's time to secure your spot at Your Strata Property Live. An evening with myself and some very special guests. The date is confirmed for Tuesday the 17th of April 2018. We'll be at SMC Conference Centre in Goulburn Street, Sydney. Six o'clock registration for a 6.30 start and we should be all wrapped up by about 8.30. I'll be putting dinner on for you. Head over to yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash live and there you'll find out all about our esteemed guests. We have Gary Bugden who's agreed to be our MC, Chris Duggan who's also our guest for the episode today, Dr Kathy Sherry, Natalie Fitzgerald, and of course, it wouldn't be the same without her and her giggle, Rena Van Oust. Now, Rena and I are going to spend some time that night covering our wins and our challenges, and we're going to be dealing with some issues that you in particular, our listeners, have asked us to talk about. There will also be plenty of time for Q&A. We're going to open up the floor to our special guests who will sit together with me on a panel and be taking questions from the floor. We're talking about short-term letting, electronic voting, and electronic meetings, bylaws. There are six CPD points available for strata managers who are attending. Yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash live. Tickets for strata managers are just $97, which is excellent value when you think about those six points and the level of content that you're going to be getting from our special guests. $67 if you're an owner or another supporter of the strata sector. If you are a member of the Your Strata Property online community, you're getting $20 off those tickets whether you're a strata manager, an owner, or a supporter. Now, spaces are very limited. So many of you have already jumped in and secured your spot. Well done. Yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash live. Now, as I mentioned, our guest for today is also going to be one of our guests on the 17th of April. Mr. Chris Duggan, take it away. Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and this is Your Strata Property. My guest this week hardly needs any introduction. He is well known to many of you, I am sure. Chris Duggan is the Joint Managing Director of Brighton Duggan, Strata Management Professionals, and he's also the current President of SCA New South Wales. He has been one of our most popular podcast guests, and you can check out episode 25 if you want to find out more about managing complex schemes direct from Chris. That episode is in our top 10 most listened to podcast episodes, so it is an absolute pleasure to welcome him back today. Hello and welcome to Chris Duggan. Thank you very much, Amanda. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. You're a very busy man. Thank you for carving out the time yet again to uh, be back with us. 
Now, we did talk about complex schemes last time, and since then, you and I have caught up a few times, and we've been tossing around this idea, I suppose, with the new law here in New South Wales and the building defects bond that's now come in from the 1st of January. You and I have been talking a bit about building defects and how that process of getting those rectified, perhaps communicating with original owners, with developers, engaging lawyers, how that process is working on the ground from your perspective, from a strata manager's perspective. And I thought you had some pretty insightful tips on how Brighton Duggan in particular manages that process. And so I wanted to bring you back and have a chat about that and share those insights with our listeners. Absolutely. And and it's always a pleasure to be here talking about cutting edge, innovative ways that we can serve our customers. And, And I'll start from the outset and say that a lot of these learnings have been learned the hard way um, and it has been very much an evolution through a process and that process turned out to be, in most cases, tedious, costly, confusing, painful for lot owners. So that made us realise that perhaps the process that we were undertaking on behalf of our clients wasn't giving rise to the best and most effective solution. So we looked at doing things differently. What we found that owners were going through very large, long, protracted, costly exercises for defect rectification and were ultimately ending up, even in a best-case scenario, with a settlement or a win, but they didn't feel like they were winning through the process Mm. because it it was causing emotional drain, financial hardship, time, and also people just at the end of it really didn't feel like they were any closer to having the defects, which is what they were there in the first place, actually having them fixed. Mm. So we went about revisiting the way we did things and thought, is the path that we're treading, which is respectfully being led by the legal aspect of of defect rectification, is it the most cost-effective way to rectify defects in the best interest of all stakeholders? And we said no. Mm -hmm. And out of that, we developed what we call our collaborative defect management process. Okay, we're going to get into that. I know all of our listeners, uh, particularly our lot owner listeners, our committee members, are on the edge of their seats going, yes, yes, Chris, that is exactly how we've been feeling and we're really looking forward to the insight that you have to share. Was it a particular building that you were involved in that made you think this is just not how things should be done or have you had, you know, five or ten of these that you've been inundated with? Give us the lead-in to this this need to revisit the way we do it. We ended up at the end of processes around defect rectification having all parties unhappy. Yeah. A lot of owners felt like it had taken too long and it was too expensive. The stakeholders on the other side, so developers and builders, felt like they could have fixed it better, more readily, more effectively if they'd gone down a different process. Our managers were drained and time, time was the thing that was killing everyone in this process. And we're talking about some buildings taking five, six, ten years to get to a process where they may well have had a settlement that on the surface sounded like a win, Mm. but when you put the time and the cost and the expenses down, they ended up with virtually nothing to actually fix the defects. And then you had to go through the process and the interruption to your building to have someone come back in and coordinate a whole rectification process. There is one particular scheme that I I won't mention just because the lot owners in there wouldn't like that, but we ended up going through a very protracted process that involved most, if not all, the law firms in Sydney. (laughs) And we had a very large building that had $15 million of legal expenses. And these were well-intentioned owners who wanted only the best outcome, which was to rectify the defects and to hold the builder and developer accountable for those. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being a, in my opinion, disastrous outcome for those owners with good advice 
uh, decent reports, but a flawed system that ended up seeing them spend this amount of money, go into a massive amount of financial duress, and still end up no further forward with the rectification of those defects. So that was a watershed moment for our team to realise that this is an imperfect system. And rather than lament the fact that it doesn't work, we can look at better ways to deal with it. Okay. So what were your first steps towards implementing that better system? So the first step was to realise that the aspect that we needed to get control of was time. Mm -hmm. So as you'd appreciate and as your listeners would appreciate that the statutory warranty process in New South Wales is very time sensitive. And the major time hurdle there is the two-year expiry of the the minor defects warranty under the HBA. Mm -hmm. And that in itself captures most, if not all, of the defects. So we use that as the critical time point. Can I just stop you there, just to clarify for our listeners. So what Chris is talking about is that for building contracts entered into after 1st of February 2012, the warranty period for anything that's not a major structural defect is two years only, two years from the date of completion of the work. So that is a very tight time frame. And I think you've just said there, Chris, a lot of defects fall into that category. Yeah, we found most, if not all, defects, apart from those that effectively made the unit or the building uninhabitable, Mm. uh, were captured as minor defects. And that, that itself is another point of contention that we've been trying to address more directly with government to broaden the definition to allow more time for owners. However, recognising that defects cases were time critical was very important. So we advocated that you need to always operate all of these defects cases with a very firm understanding of time, which is critical to get lawyers involved very early on in the piece, Mm. or conversely, have the builder or developer provide via their own lawyers dates themselves around commencement of contracts, when they enter into, when occupation is received, so then you can plot what your two-year timeframe strategy is. Mm -hmm. And that will be, you know, there is no better system there. Your own solicitors and or the developer solicitors will provide that information to you along with those certificates. But once you have that understanding, you can then make sure that you don't run out of time because the next thing that we found was that schemes and developers and builders that were under time pressure made poor decisions. So understanding how you operate within that time and understanding how that works means that you can very early on in the in the process gather your team of consultants and your, your collaborative team that you're going to use moving forward. And it does, I would couch this and actually try not to underestimate it, but it's incredibly important that your strata committee is on board with this process and wants to drive a tempo for rectification within that period. Mm. Uh, and oftentimes that requires the manager providing advice and the lawyers providing their strategy input to what can be achieved within that time period if collaboration is properly sought. Now, the caveat to all of this is there are circumstances that will apply in about 10% of the case where you need to go very hard, very early with a straight legal process against a builder developer who is not going to cooperate in this process. Mm -hmm. So, the process here is very much about collaboration. So, you, you understand your time, you pick a group of consultants which is your lawyers who would provide that upfront advice around the strategy. You provide a group of report inspectors, principally around general defects and fire, and you must make sure that those two are captured. We found that in most cases that will capture the vast majority of defects. In some cases, you may need a hydraulic engineer depending on the defects that are identified early on in the piece. However, you need to make sure that you separate those things out to properly capture all of the major systemic issues that are likely to occur in schemes, you know, in the the last five to ten years. Mm -hmm. And with that process, 
you work with the owner's corporation to quickly understand that things can be achieved far quickly, far more readily and far more cost-effectively by getting everyone around the table very early. However, you still need to operate within the spectre of the law because the law provides an incredible time guillotine that you can use to create the appropriate pressure for all sides there to make sure things are done. And you need to have those preemptive steps ready, particularly with your legal team, in the event that things do fall over or you're not getting the traction that you need. Because the one thing that will happen here is if you let time drag on, time will kill all deals, it'll kill all negotiation, it will also force people into positions of making hasty decisions. And that's on both sides of the equation from the owners and the builder developers. Mm -hmm. Just to your point about getting your uh, consultants locked in and getting that initial strategic advice from lawyers, uh, getting your experts on board and producing reports, something that I see overlooked all too often is for those experts who are producing the reports, including on the fire and hydraulics if you need it, they should be providing a costing as early as possible of what it's going to cost to fix these things. And if it's not them who can do it and you need to get a quantity surveyor in to do it once you've got the itemised list of defects, then I always encourage my clients to do that very early because what do you do then? You compare that cost to the estimated cost of the lawyer. Correct. And that is exactly right. Understanding the ramifications and the cost to rectify is critically important because there will be a point in time when as a group of owners you need to sit around and make a commercial decision around whether you wish to pursue the rectification of those defects. Mm. And again, this is the acknowledgement and being pragmatic around understanding it's an imperfect system and spending $200,000 in the context of a legal case against a builder developer through the tribunal or the court will far exceed that. And so best understanding and best having a trusted group of advisors, so the manager, the consultant, the lawyer, who have all been experienced through this process providing that input, working with an owner's corporation who is open to the concept potentially of settling and making sure that they can just put these things to bed is incredibly important. Mm. And I do hear that from clients that they do want, from buildings, from committee members, they just want the problem fixed. They just want the defects fixed. They want to be able to use their swimming pool. They don't want their shower to be leaking anymore. And if you put it to them in a way that, well, litigation is not the only path here, you can actually raise some money and, and pay for these and fix it yourself rather than going down that uncertain path of litigation, uncertain as to outcome and uncertain as to cost. For some buildings, they've, they've never heard that before. And it's sort of that, oh, okay, didn't realise that there was an option B. So any lawyers who are listening, our strata managers as well, if you're not presenting that option B, don't forget about it. Yeah, and it also involves a degree of maturity getting over what is fair. Mm. And often defects cases become very emotive. People believe this is their home, someone ought to be responsible for the rectification of this and it shouldn't be the lot owner. Mm. And that is when what is fair and what is commercial and sensible may not align mm. and sometimes taking a step back. And this is easier said than done and particularly it's easier for us as arm's length consultants. It's much harder for a lot owner who is living and breathing with a leaky window or a systemic defect in their building to say, let's not pursue someone because it's not cost effective. Mm. And that's why working with people who are experienced in that process and can give frank advice and having a trusted group of advisors is critically important. Mm. So what happens next? You've got you've armed yourself, you've got your reports, you've got your team around you. Uh, let's say you are able to communicate with the developer and they seem to be responsive. What does Brighton Duggan suggest next? 
So going back two steps, you need to have taken the developer and the builder on this journey as well because often they are not used or accustomed to this process of collaboration. <laughs> so you need to make them comfortable with, A, the consultant team you're using, and I would suggest that you pick a top-tier consultant firm that has the appropriate resources to be able to turn things around quickly, and that's becoming more difficult in the current environment with lots more buildings having defects, a lot more talk about people perhaps not dealing with those things in a timely manner, building defect bond requirements coming in. So getting the right consultants is critical. I would also suggest that working with the consultants around the type and format of their report is very important. Yes. Historically, we saw defects reports that were reams of paper to try and justify the value or the quantum of defects, as opposed to a much more concise list of defects that is better understood by the builder developer more accurately describes the defects themselves and in some cases dismisses those that are clearly of a maintenance nature or a minor nature such as settlement and cracking. Mm -hmm. And we worked with our consultant set to make sure that the defects reports being presented weren't automatically getting the builder developers offside because they were dealing with trivial issues that shouldn't have been captured in those reports. Mm -hmm. So once you've got a better trust arrangement that the defects that have been identified are legitimate, you've got a better opportunity to bring those people to the table. Further, we encourage our consultants to accompany the builder-developer representatives during the site inspection. Now, this doesn't happen in all situations. However, most consultants will agree to do this because it allows defects to be discussed in real time on site. And if there is an alternative solution, if there is a methodology that should have been considered in assessing whether that is or isn't a defect, it can be understood there and now. Rather than putting it in a report, requiring a further discussion down the track, spending three months coming back saying, well, actually, have you read the fire engineered solution? Have you seen under there we've got photos to show that waterproofing exists? So having that better understanding reduces items that do appear in the report, gets down to the brass tacks of what's a legitimate defect, and also through that process gives integrity to the fact that both sides are well-intentioned about wanting these defects fixed rather than going for a grab bag of items. Yeah, very, very good advice. Too often I have sat around the settlement table with those reams and reams of paper and realised that we've just spent about four hours arguing over something that's costed at $1,000. And for those more commercially minded clients who can do those sums, that's kind of heartbreaking. So yeah, very good advice to remember straight up. Absolutely. So what happens next? Uh, we're going around the site, we're ticking things off the list. Maybe we've got some points of contention here between the building and the developer builder. No, these are not defects. Yes, they are. Where do you go next when you've got that conflict? The next thing to do is to quite literally get all the stakeholders in a room as quickly as possible and try and work through things. And you'll find that having everyone around the table narrows down and funnels through to the legitimate defects very quickly. And in our experience, there will be some legitimate disagreement around the type or the rectification that's required for those defects. Mm. In those circumstances, we've brought in third-party experts and agreed at that time that their adjudication would be final on those defects, or we've allowed further rectification to be considered or further methodologies to be put to our consultants. So we always advise our consultants to be open-minded to alternative rectification or alternative solutions outside of what they would have stipulated. Because the Australian standards can be generally be very broad and they can also have DTS provisions, which is deemed to satisfy or alternative solutions. And allowing a builder developer who probably best understands the building and the fabric and their consultants better than an external advisor, a way to devise a strategy that ultimately will still meet compliance. And then having a receptivity and openness to saying, 
will this actually address the issue? Having that level of openness rather than a very fixed mindset around what you expect as being the single solution is very important. Mm. And if you can't get agreement on these things, you're also able to, as I said, refer them out to third-party experts. And there are consultants who will operate very quickly in a very focused manner on particular items, particularly around fire services, which we've found to be, I guess, most readily contestable these days due to the ability to have rather complex alternative solutions outside of the BCA. And for those items that you can't agree on, is the only option then to head off to the tribunal if you're within their jurisdiction or maybe we're off to the district court or the Supreme Court? Do we then go and have a, a legal battle about those things? Or Typically at this point in time, we're getting closer to the two years. Yep. And this is where we've introduced what we see is another innovative way of trying to deal with the time matters. Because as we said, dealing with that negotiation with a guillotine of time sitting behind you means that things get more and more critical as you get closer to that time frame, as you can imagine. So two ways to relieve that pressure valve are A, to enter into a mutually agreed deed to extend those warranty periods between the builder, developer and the owner's corporation for a further period to allow you to work through whether it be further quantification of the defects or further agreement around rectification, or alternatively, if you're at a point where you do have agreement, to enter into some sort of a settlement deed which puts it to bed. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that all of the items need to be 100% locked down. Often we find those settlement deeds deal with some solutions, for example, that would deal with what sort of sign-off we required post-rectification. So it may have identified a leaking window. It may have proposed that it needs to meet a certain Australian standard at the end of the rectification. And then that deed will give rise to a series of works that actually then leads to how that Australian standard is met. So it may not be prescriptive insofar as what works are required to get there, but it may well have a standard of, of achievement that's required at the end of the day. And there is relief then under that deed in terms of the owner's corporation to be able to come back and uh, enforce some level of either compliance of extra works or get some sort of penalty remedy if that Australian standard isn't ultimately met. Mm. It's a quite a an unusual approach, but it's one that I've seen before, Chris, and you've articulated it incredibly well. Um, from a legal perspective, it's an approach that I can endorse and support, and we should be seeing a lot more buildings doing it. Have you been in recent times on the other side of one of those deeds, and you've seen it work effectively if we need to return to the deed and hold somebody either side to their obligations, or are you still seeing that play out? It really does vary, and I must stress that this is not a one-size-fits-all solution. So this is a, a method of rectification that we find that works with a builder-developer who is interested and committed to their brand. So A, they want to come back and fix the defects, which is in most cases the starting point for good collaboration, but also where they're going to be committed to the product long-term, they're committed to the customer in terms of return service, and they're also committed to that business uh, or the special purpose view that they've used, been around post-completion to actually, uh, you know, give the surety that we need. So have we had examples of where we've had to enforce that deed? Yes, we have. Many of the builder developers we're working with have taken time to get comfortable with the concept of, A, extending their statutory warranties because this was a, a foreign concept to them, and also a time to get comfortable with somewhat of an open-ended compliance-based sign-off as opposed to a specific scope being signed off. Mm. And there is a degree of trust involved there and working with a consultant team that is reasonable, that they understand is going to provide a sensible level of understanding as to the signed-off is very important. On the flip side, we've had buildings where getting to the 99th 
you know, hour there and you're getting to the point where you need to wrap things up and you find that you just cannot get a sensible outcome in those situations, then we refer back to the lawyers and advise that they may consider commencing proceedings against that builder or developer because we don't believe they're going to get the relief or the rectification they need. Mm, and always keeping in mind what the cost of that litigation is estimated to be and what the cost of rectifying those defects is estimated to be and, and trying as best we can to take a commercial approach. That's right. And that means that the lawyers are still heavily involved, particularly during the drafting of the deeds and of the settlement process. So it is still very much a process that doesn't sideline the need for legal intervention. It just takes a different path as opposed to using that legal intervention as a single course track to NCAT or the Supreme Court. It's using that only as a last resort. Mm. And I think we're going to see this becoming more and more common with buildings in this situation, trying to enter into uh, these types of deeds to extend time or to record agreements. And something that I want to uh, remind strata managers and even committee members is to be aware that this type of contractual arrangement might exist and you might not know it because you've inherited the building from another manager or you've just taken on the role of secretary and someone's sold and left. And when I have buildings coming to me saying, Amanda, we think we're out of time, but is there anything we can do? I always engage in this type of conversation with them and say, look, there may have been some deed entered into, there may be some contractual arrangement where the developer has agreed to extend time and you could still be within time. So let's search the books and records, let's talk to the former managing agent, can we talk to the former committee members and just find out exactly what happened at that close to completion stage when we were first looking at defects. So for managers, it can be a a trap for some players there that if you don't realise that this is an option that buildings could have entered into these arrangements, make sure you're asking those questions just to cover yourself. Absolutely. And and I think some of the important things to note there is we have a new regime of disclosure of motions, particularly around first AGMs and AGMs that require and obligate owners to consider building defects from day one. Mm. Now, that to me is one of the most sensible inclusions because it has a conversation and and a discussion with owners at the very outset about what is required. And typically where we would lead defects to form, call it that, or to surface, we're now bringing forward that conversation. So at the first AGM or for the first year anniversary of those schemes, we're advocating that those reports be done, again, to make sure that time doesn't march on and you don't end up being uh, constrained or limited in what actions you can take. Again, needing to reiterate that at a point in time, you need to decide what strategy to go down. And some of those strategies may well involve the more traditional Supreme Court actions or court actions, and they are still, in some cases, very effective at giving outcomes that are acceptable to owners. But our experience was that generally those arrangements were not proving to provide solutions or outcomes that were acceptable to all stakeholders. Yeah, definitely. Now, we both mentioned at the beginning of our chat, Chris, the uh, Building Defects Bond, Part 11 of the Strata Schemes Management Act here in New South Wales, commenced on the 1st of January 2018. Is that going to solve all problems? Amanda, you, you, <laughs> you're asking question. A, it is a very loaded <laughs> question. So, at a political level, it is a measure being introduced to provide better protection for consumers. Is it a challenging system with a lot of detail to be developed still? Yes. Will it be ultimately a solution for owners' corporations? In my opinion, not in its current drafting. The challenge that we're finding is that statutory warranties will still continue to apply and the defect bond system 
is effectively a different set of warranties and rectifications under a different regime, and the two will operate a two-step defects process within a building. Uh, so any lawyer worth their salt will tell an owner's corporation that the defect bond under Part 11 will continue to operate and there will be defects identified under a certain Australian standard report and the developer obviously has a liability to that. However, you will still advise your clients that they have warranties under the Home Building Act that still need to be maintained that apply potentially to different defects, to defects that are identified after the interim report, which is this one-stop shop report done at a very early period in the strata plan's life, which is the one and only opportunity for those defects to be nominated. And the method of inspection is far different and far less detailed and invasive than we're typically seeing under more detailed Home Building Act uh, statutory warranty reports. So do I see it as solving the problems? Probably not. Do I see it as a good step forward in terms of making builders, developers more accountable around the way they build buildings? Potentially. Mm. I don't do too much conveyancing these days, but if I do, I generally do off-the-plan contracts, a little bit more involved, and particularly in this climate, they need a bit more detailed expert advice. And I'm working with some purchasers now just uh, having settled and going through their defects liability period, which is generally three months after the settlement. And developers who have been around for a while have a good name. I find they're generally in there and they're fixing things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure post 1 Jan 2018 that the fact that they've got a bond being held is going to change that attitude. So I agree with you it's not going to solve those longer-term problems that we see crop up at close to the two-year or after the two-year mark, and we certainly do have the Home Building Act still there to provide those protections to the extent they can. But I at least personally do see it as a um, more of a political rather than a practical move in this sector because I do find that good developers are in there and they're fixing these, these obvious defects that are arising once the, the scheme comes off anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it is a system introduced to keep the lowest common denominator accountable. Mm. Unfortunately, it's more likely to give rise to builder developers potentially abandoning the bond and just leaving that there, uh, and whether that 2% is sufficient and whether there is appropriate administration of such a complex system in place is yet to be seen. And there's, there's still a lot of detail. I do applaud the fact that the government has recognised that consumers need better protection, and we all agree with that. I don't know whether this is the most effective mechanism to achieve that. However, like anything, you need to try it. We mm. need to see how this pans out. And perhaps at the end of this, we will either put it down as a raging success or use it as some sort of iterative process to a better protection system for owners in strata. Mm, for sure. We've got listeners, Chris, who perhaps uh, they've just bought into a brand new building, perhaps they've been there for a couple of years, their committee is still trying to work out how to tackle this whole issue of building defects, maybe they're working with their strata manager, maybe not. What's your advice for some quick action steps that those listeners in that position should be taking now to get started on this process or to approach this process a better way? Firstly, understand time. So it is absolutely critical because once you go over that time hurdle, you have no opportunity and no recourse. You know, there's very little remedy you have, you know, outside of some very complicated negligence claims, which in our opinion are not overly successful and are very costly and risky. However, understanding time up front is key. So if you're in a new building and you don't understand those timeframes and how they apply, that is your absolute number one priority. After that, you need to get a group of collaborative advisors together, and that is a lawyer, an engineer, or a series of engineers, and your strata manager, 
and understand what process you will undertake and how you will do that. Then I've always found that engaging with the builder-developer, particularly based on our relationship that we have, if we've advised the builder and developer through the inception startup days, we can use our leverage and our, our rapport with them to get at least a conversation started about what process is required or what interface we would like to see moving forward. In some cases, that will not be possible and you'll need to strategize outside of their involvement. That's why I said this is not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's worked well for us because we are able to exercise our experience and our leverage with our stakeholders. Mm. If you're, uh, you know, particularly if the builder doesn't exist anymore or if you can't get them in a room, then you need to strategize how you deal with those things in a much more effective manner and collaboration may not be a solution. You may need to go for the jugular from day one and make sure you preserve your rights through the courts. Mm. Thank you very much for sharing that, Chris, and being so open and frank about the Brighton Duggan approach when it comes to this process. I think it was only a couple of episodes now that we had David Hampton on the podcast and he was talking about the sharing of information and the uh, specialisation, I guess, of certain aspects of your strata management business. And, and he used the example of building defects. You know, we're all dealing with it. Who's really focusing on it and who is developing those systems and sharing that framework so that we can all benefit from it and we're not repeating the same mistakes and all butting our heads up against the same problems. So I think this has been a a really valuable chat, not just for owners who are living this, but for managers as well. So thank you very much for giving us that opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is an industry that does share information and it does legitimately work in the best interests of owners. Uh, And strata managers do collaborate and those shared learnings and that IP that we can move forward to better service our customers, to better enhance our skill set and to be more valued to our clients is critically important. So we all have a job to make sure that when we do come across alternative ways of doing things, which may not suit all scenarios, but may be an option that owners can consider, I think we've got an obligation to make sure that we share that. Yep, I agree. Now, Chris, the last time you were on the show, I asked you the book question. I want Mm -hmm. to ask you a variation of that question. I'm not sure if you're prepared for this or not. (laughs) But what book do you most like to gift to people and why? And I will say I'm channeling my inner Tim Ferriss here, which is a question he likes to ask on his podcast. I'm stealing it. What book do you most like to gift? Well, Amanda, you will find this either uncanny or not, but it is actually Tim Ferriss's Tribe of Mentors. (laughs) I kid you not. Which I, I will admit was given to me prior to Christmas as a gift from one of my very close friends. Yeah. And I too listen to his podcast and I must admit that I can go listen to his podcast and then I'll pick up three or four books and I just keep going through a cycle. So I need to get through all those books. However, Tribe of Mentors as a book is a short series of of those interviews with the best bits taken out and they are literally life-guiding bits of advice from people, not dissimilar to Brett Kelly's book that he put out, Collective Wisdom, many years ago, which is taking the learnings from very successful people across a variety of industries and distilling that down into a book. So I received it as a gift. It was very meaningful to me over this particular Christmas when I took some time out to reflect. So that will be my next gift. It used to be Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which I think I mentioned last time. Mm. However, I'm going to shift it now to Tribal Mentors. Thank you very much to my friend, my dear friend that gave that to me. Yes, uh, very good suggestion. I purchased that in an airport I think I was when I was heading over to Hawaii just before Christmas and I'm about halfway through it. So no need to gift it to me, Chris. I already have it. You're going to have to think of something else. I'll get something better. (laughs) But if uh, any of our listeners haven't come across that yet, we will have a link to that in the show notes to make sure you can grab yourselves a copy. Highly recommend it. 
All right, Chris, how do our listeners find out more about you and anything you want to wrap up with? Uh, they can find out about Bright and Duggan at our website, bright-duggan.com.au. You can track me down at LinkedIn, Chris Duggan. And what I would like to leave your listeners with is all of this relies very heavily on a trust relationship between managers and their clients. And I would love to see that as an industry coming away from this, that everyone better understands our role to work together and is more accepting of the fact that it's an imperfect system that is very complicated that we're all trying to solve. So you will never get a silver bullet solution to these very complicated, expensive issues, but working together and accepting that you will have some hiccups on the way and those challenges are better accomplished together is what I'd like all of your listeners and strata managers to work with. Mm, Thank you. Very wise words. And I'll look forward to our next chat, Chris. I know it's there in the future. You'll be back. I would love to be back. Thank you very much, Amanda. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?